All right, if you can uh, get situated at your table, we're going to get rolling tonight. Thank you for being here for night three of our Compass Gatherings. We've had some, some great uh, times together the last couple nights and good discussion, and uh, we're going to uh, trusting for the same tonight. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to walk through uh, kind of the, the focus of what we're going to do tonight, why we're gathering, what we're doing. So let's go ahead and pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your presence through your spirit who's here tonight. I thank you for your faithfulness to us as individual followers of you as well to your church called New Hope. And so, Lord, as we walk through these days and, and embrace the, the, the direction that you are giving to us, Lord, I pray that you would build within our hearts a sense of unity, a sense of passion, a sense of understanding of what you're doing. Because, Lord, ultimately what we're doing tonight really isn't about us. It's about you and about the people that you want us to reach and to bring them into relationship with you. So, Lord, give us your heart. Give us, Lord, your mind. Give us, Lord, the, the insight that you would desire for us to have, Lord, as we move forward together as a church family. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, so at your tables as well, uh, you're going to find there's a, uh, some basic notes that you might want to grab that you can just follow along with. Uh, everything else is going to be up on the screens as well, make it easy to follow. Uh, and so what I would like to start by doing is kind of give you an, an, an overview of why we're doing these gatherings, why we're, we're meeting like this, uh, because of the, the season of life that we're walking through as a church. So the first reason that we're gathering tonight is to come away with a sense of direction about where God is leading us. Um, and I know that as the, we've walked through uh, a lot of change and transition over the last eight or nine months, you might have felt the, the earth move underneath your feet and thinking what in the world's going on with our church. And um, part of that is understanding the direction that God is leading us, which really needs, leads to the second thing is bringing some clarity to the change that I want you to understand that God is orchestrating. Uh, some people are under the interpretation that Kim and I came and we had all these, these plans of change for New Hope. We came into the doors and didn't plan to change anything, but just planned to listen to what God was doing. In all honesty, change happened to us. And not just saying Kim and I, change has happened to us as a church family. And we are simply responding to what I believe is a change that God is orchestrating. So tonight we want to make sure that we have a sense of clarity about where we are as a church family. And then the third thing that's really important is, is if we have the direction and we have a sense of clarity that God really does bind our hearts together in a sense of unity of where he's leading us to. And we move forward together as a church family to embrace the, the mission and the purpose that he's giving us for our future. So what I'd like you to do in understanding that what's extremely important about what we're doing tonight is that we talk about this concept of a compass. That's what we're calling it, compass gatherings because God gives you and I a compass, not a road map. I wish it was the other way around. I wish that we asked God, okay, how do I get from point A to point B? And God would give us turn-by-turn turn directions so that we would never get lost, that we would never have to use any faith because God would always tell us exactly where to go and when to do it. Did anybody agree with me? Wouldn't that be so much easier? But when you read through Scripture and you see how God works throughout history, God never gives anybody a roadmap. He always points a direction. He gives them a compass and says, this is the direction you're supposed to go. And as you begin to go that way, God begins to reveal which way we're supposed to turn and where we're supposed to go as we head the direction that he gives us. And so for us, that's kind of difficult. And, and so tonight, what I like to do, the first few moments are really probably about the first 30, 35 minutes, I'm going to share the compass direction that I believe God is giving, not just to New Hope, but you'll see as we walk through some scriptures together, that this is, I believe, this is the body of Christ. This is nothing new to our church. This is really something that's a few thousand years old that's been in the scriptures for us to embrace and to move forward in. But, but I wanted, what I want you to do, and I know we, to, to really embrace this and get this, we have to kind of take a step back and look at the bigger picture of what God is saying. Now, that's difficult for you and I because usually the, the, the lens that we look through is always our local context. My life, my church, how this looks here. And when we do that, we, we don't understand sometimes why we do what we do or even where we're going because we haven't taken a step back and looked at the broader picture of what God is doing. It's like if you go on the computer and you use Google Maps and you type in an address, it's great because you can say, I'm starting here and this is where I'm going, and it'll map it out for you. But what happens is, you know, if you've used Google Maps more and more recently, you know, now you have Street View. Anybody use Street View? Which is, you can actually see your house. In fact, when they did the pictures, when Google took their car through our neighborhood in Newburgh, they got a picture of Jordan standing in our garage. That's how close they were. So I could come from outer space, and in a few seconds, I could see my st son standing in the garage. 
But understanding that for you and I to really see what God is doing, we have to back way out, way out from our local context, way out from just new hope to understand the bigger picture of what God is doing and where he's leading us in order for us to get the context of what we do here. So we start with a broader picture and we will work our way more specifically down to what does that mean for us as a church family. So I want to begin by really answering a number of questions that, that really help us to see the bigger picture. They're on the outline there. You can fill some things in as well, and there'll some, be some information up on the screens. So the first question is this. What is our ultimate goal? Not just for New Hope, but what is the ultimate goal of all of human history? In its simplest term, it is the glory of God. And let me explain what I mean by that, because this is not something that I came up with. This is something that God came up with a long time ago. The ultimate goal of all of human history is culminated in the fact that God wants to bring glory to himself, that that's why we're created. And the ultimate goal is described for you and I in this incredible picture in the book of Revelation in chapter 7. God is giving a vision to John and he's describing and John is seeing a, a future understanding of what all of human history is aimed for. In fact, it's the finish line for all things. Let me read from it. It's uh, Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 and 10. John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, I want you just for a moment just to, to, to see what John is communicating for you and I, how important this is. So the finish line for why we exist as human beings, why Jesus came, why God created us, is that eventually God's desire is that people from every tongue, tribe, nation, language will stand before the throne of God someday in worship, in unity together. That's where all this is heading. Now, some people think, man, really? If that's what heaven is, I get bored with 20 minutes of worship on a Sunday morning. I can't imagine doing that forever. But see, the reason that you and I sometimes will feel that way is because we don't understand the whole context of worship. See, we have never really worshipped the way God wants us to worship because God wants us to worship in a face-to-face context. And just picture for a moment what it would be like to stand before the throne of Jesus, to see him face-to-face without a veil, without a cloud, without anything that would distract us or impede our understanding and view of who he is. He would see us as we are, we would see him as he is, and we will be able to worship with all these people representing all the groups of people from around the world throughout the centuries, throughout, throughout time. Can you imagine what that would be like? And what for some of us is a little scary because you've got to understand different languages. That means when you and I will stand and worship before the throne, there's, most, there's a really good chance that the person standing on your left and your right is not speaking English. They're speaking another language. But the beauty is, is that all of that language communicates to God, worship and glorifying him. And that's the whole point. Now, I, I, I get pretty passionate about this because what Jesus is describing for you now, if that's the finish line, we have to back everything up from the finish line to make sure we understand where we're going. So when God tells us that standing at that throne and worshiping him are people from every background, people from every people group, every ethnic, every race, that means that God loves people from every group and every language and every background on this planet. And he has forever since he created all of us. And because of that, that means you and I have to be willing to embrace people who are different than us. Because if we have a challenge embracing people who are different than us now, imagine what it's going to be like when you and I are standing as the minority, most of us, around the throne. But I want you just to capture the reason that I'm so passionate about this is because I, I got a, a, an amazing experience to, to get a glimpse of what that, that the power of being able to worship Jesus in unity with people from a different race. So I've shared a bit that we were traveling in Uganda a couple of years ago, and, and one of the highlights of that trip for me, really the highlights of my life, is that we were in the northern part of Uganda. We were in a place called Ogur, and there was a, an AIDS clinic that had been founded a few years before we, were, we had come to visit. And, and it was founded by an organization called Medical Teams International. And their purpose, obviously, was to resource the community and the surrounding villages with AIDS testing and also AIDS treatment and, and helping them with this medical clinic. And so when they founded it, the purpose really focused of the, of the whole context was medical. And so as they began to do that, they began to see something happen that they didn't anticipate. 
So what had happened in that area before from all these surrounding villages is that there were local pastors in all these local villages that for years and years and years had never talked to each other. They came from different Christian traditions. There was Catholic, there was Episcopalian, there was, uh, there was Baptist, there was Pentecostal, there was Assembly of God. There was all these different denominations and backgrounds, and they all kind of kept to themselves. And then when this clinic came in, what began to happen is people from all of the different villages began to go to the clinic to get tested and to get treatment. And what they would do is they'd come back, and the pastors realized what an amazing resource this clinic was, so they started to come too to see what their people were accessing. And the result was all these pastors, even though they were all primarily Ugandan, some of them were actually from Congo, some were from other areas, they, they came together and realized that they could live in unity together, that they could partner together, that they could, they could be together and see God work through them in unity instead of working off in a silo on their own someday or at some time. So what happens when we get there is we're going on a tour, at least that's what we think we're doing. We arrive, and they're taking us on this tour of this clinic to see how they test people, how they treat people, the medications they use. And all the time that they're doing this, we are hearing people. We could tell it was worship, but since it was in Luganda, it wasn't in English. We couldn't tell exactly what was going on, but there was this roar coming from another room in the clinic the whole time we're getting the tour. And finally, when we get to the end of the tour, we walk into this room, and this room was already really loud, and it erupted. Because as we walked in, what was in that room was 40 pastors that heard that we were coming, and they said, we want to be there because this is what their goal was. They wanted to worship with us. And it was crazy. So we walk in, and they're singing. You should have seen their worship team. It looked nothing like this. Nothing of, none of these instruments even came close to, to show what they were doing. And it was incredible because they were worshiping, they were dancing. And so we walked into this worship service, and they were overjoyed because we got to join with them. And so for probably an hour, we got to worship in Luganda. I had no idea what I was saying. I was mimicking. Sometimes I would speak English. There were times where literally I was speaking in tongues because I'm like, okay, God, I don't get their language. They don't get my language, but I know you get this language. And so I would worship in tongues. It was so powerful. People were crying, and it was just this amazing experience of being able to worship Jesus with people from a different background, with a different skin color, with a different language. But we were all, we were all unified in one purpose, to worship Jesus. And it was powerful. I know that was just a glimpse of the finish line of where God is leading us. And understand, being in heaven for eternity is not about singing songs forever. It's about being in a, in a face-to-face relationship with Jesus. There's nothing better than that. And so understanding that's where God's taking us. That's where all of human history ultimately is leading. That is the finish line. And the reason I begin with that is that you and I have to have all ongoingly have the capacity to keep in mind what the finish line looks like. Because when we lose sight of the finish line, it, it ceases to be about the glory of God and about reaching other people. And it becomes more about us and what we want and what's easy and comfortable And preferable for us as opposed to ultimately we exist for the glory of God. It's not for our glory. It's for his glory, which leads to the second question. Ultimately, what is our motivation or what is really our mission? And our mission is what Jesus mission was and continues to be. And that is reconciling people back to God. That is what our mission and what our our motivation is in terms of why we exist as individual followers of Jesus is not only to experience his presence in our life, but to help other people experience what we've experienced in being reconciled back to God. Now, let me explain what that means because that concept of reconciliation is, is laced throughout Scripture about that being Jesus' mission and him as well giving that mission to us once we say yes to following him. So let me read some passages of scripture that, that highlight this. So in Colossians chapter 1 verse 19 and 20, it says this. It says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, speaking of Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So God's purpose of sending Jesus was to take people who were separated from God and to bring them back into relationship with God through Jesus. And then Jesus actually defines for you and I what that looks like when he comes on the scene in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. He stands up in the synagogue and he takes the the, the scroll that was the book of Isaiah and he reads, which was a traditional thing they would do. And this is what he read to them. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. And this is the key thing in verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So when Jesus did this, he read, reads that, and then he rolls up the scroll, and, he, and as he's sitting down, he says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, what I just read is about me. That's what Jesus was saying. It was relatively earth-shattering for them. They had been waiting for this and waiting for this, and Jesus says, it's now, and it's in me. And what he was saying is, in verse 18, he's describing who? He's just describing the broken people that he's come to reconcile back to God. But in verse 19, he says something so powerful to the Jewish mind, they understood what he was saying. Because when it said, when he said, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, he was referring in the Jewish calendar to something called Jubilee. And Jubilee was something every 50 years in the cycle of the Jewish calendar, where basically it was a time where the playing field was once again leveled. In other, in other words, what was wronged in the previous 50 years was made right. Slaves were set free. Debt was forgiven. Land was re- returned to its rightful owner. All those things that were, were wrong and those things that ha- were injustices were made right every 50 years as forgiveness was extended and people were reconciled once again. So when Jesus shows up and reads that, he's saying, I'm not only here for the 50-year cycle in the Jewish calendar. I am here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor for all people. It was powerful. It was powerful what they were listening. And he says that today for us. Jesus' coming was to announce for all of us that he's come to make what is wrong right through the cross and what he did for us, which leads to the third passage of Scripture where it becomes very personal for you and I. So Paul highlights it in Colossians. Jesus says it in Luke 4. Then listen to what Paul says again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So this is what this means. If you said yes to Jesus, guess what? You have a ministry and it's called reconciliation. It's called drawing people back to God. It's called bringing people back to God through Jesus. Why is this so important? This is our motivation. Because the concept of reconciliation is something that you and I, whether we know it or not, feel very deeply about. See, reconciliation has to do with bringing somebody who's been isolated, separated, and alone back into relationship with the person that they were originally in relationship with when it all started. So Jesus comes and says, I'm reconciling people through me back to God. Now let me me get to the bottom of why this is so important. In this room right now, most likely, probably not all of us, but a good portion of us have lost somebody who was close to us as a friend or family, who's died. Now, when we lose a loved one, we experience what God is describing about the power of reconciliation and being brought back to God. Because what you and I experience when somebody close to us dies is what somebody who's separated from God experiences for eternity. See, one of the greatest pains, the greatest hurts that human beings can experience is isolation. It's separation. It's when somebody dies and we know we're in this life, we're no longer going to see them again. And that's the depth of our pain. There's no going back. There's no hope to see them again until the next life. And thank goodness that we know God, we can trust in that. But if you've experienced that loss of a loved one, I want you to feel that pain for a moment because understand what that would feel like forever. That ultimately, if people aren't reconciled back to God, they are separated from him. And being separated from him means that once this life is over, that goes on forever. And God's desire is that people be reconciled back to God through Jesus so that ultimately they are the ones just like we desire to be, to stand before the throne and worship Jesus forever, not isolated, not separated, not alone. That's why I say this is our motivation. This is what should drive us, is that every person that we know who doesn't know Jesus, friends, family members, people we go to school with, people that we live by, people that we drive by, if they don't know Jesus, they are separated from God. And that should break our heart. That should drive us. That should almost haunt us in a way that we know the truth and we've experienced the reconciliation of Jesus. And therefore, it should drive us with great passion to try to help other people realize what's missing in their life is they've yet to be reconciled back to God. That should drive us. That's what drove Jesus. That's what his mission was in understanding that, which leads to the third question that you and I need to understand, and that is, what is our process? And in other words, what is this whole thing that we're describing really called? 
It's called discipleship. It's a term that you've probably heard a few times before. And the process of discipleship is bringing people back into relationship with God through finding and following Jesus. That's the process of discipleship. And this is important because in some of his last words before he went back to be with the Father, Jesus said what we call the Great Commission, which is the charge and the challenge for every person who's ever committed themselves to following Jesus. And this is what Jesus said in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. It says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So stay with me here. We're at the big picture right now. And you're thinking, wow, that's a lot of information. That's a fire hose. I know. But understand, the ultimate goal is the glory of God. The way that happens is when people are reconciled back to God through Jesus. And the process that we follow to see that happen is the process of discipleship where God, once we say yes to following Jesus through the power of his Holy Spirit, begins to transform us so that ultimately we become disciples. We become followers of Jesus. And we talked about this as we're walking through this 18-month series on what does it mean to be a disciple. As we've talked a few weeks ago, I talked about in, in its basic, simplest form, what does a disciple look like? Now, we're digesting that in depth for 18 months. But in the simplest form, when somebody's transformed by God's Spirit who's placed in them when they said yes to Jesus, the evidence of that is that we begin to actually listen and obey the words of Jesus. And one of the signs of a disciple is obedience. That when Jesus says something, we do it. That's the sign. Now, understand, I mentioned this a few weeks ago. It is not the justification for being a disciple. We think, man, I have to be obedient in order to be a disciple. No, you are obedient if you are a disciple. It's the evidence of what is already going on inside of you. Another thing that's true of a disciple is that we ultimately reflect the character of Jesus, and the character of Jesus is seen in our love for each other and our love for other people. And that's the one thing that the world looks for more than anything else is do, does, do people who call themselves Christians actually display love? Do they care for people? Do they have compassion? Do they have mercy? Do they reach out for other people? Which leads to the third thing, ultimately, for a disciple, is what another point of evidence for us to know, am I a disciple, is that we eventually we follow the way of Jesus, and the way of Jesus was sacrifice. Is that he was willing to give up everything of himself to serve the greater purpose of reconciling people, reconciling people back to God through him. And ultimately, you and I know when we've come to that place where we know we're really following Jesus and we're disciples because we're willing to give up things that we don't want to give up. We're willing to do without so that people can do with. We're willing to be able to make decisions that can be costly in our life because our passion drives us to follow Jesus because we realize we live in a world where people have yet to fully be reconciled back to God. That should drive us. So understanding, again, this broader picture, this, this bigger picture of what's going on, uh, what I'd like to do for just a moment and then talk a little bit about the shift that we're experiencing as a church is I want to play just a simple video. I played it a few weeks ago, a number of weeks ago, and it just, just a couple minutes, and it's, it's a church, it's a, another church created it, and they basically were saying, this is the process of discipleship. This is what it looks like. And so basically what we just talked about in the last 20 minutes or so is summed up in this quick video that kind of gives us an image of what this looks like. So go ahead and let's watch this together.
So in a moment, what I, what I want to do is, again, we're, gonna, we're at the big picture. We're going to come a little bit closer. We're going to zoom in a little bit from Google Earth and get a little bit closer to our address. But before we get to the specific address of New Hope, I want to describe for you something that maybe some of you have felt, some of you maybe are unaware of, or some of you might even have resisted, even though you know you're resisting it. There's a shift happening in our church. And it's not a shift that's just happening to New Hope. It's a shift that's happening in the body of Christ. And it's a shift from this understanding that we have embraced about the concept of church that ultimately gets us off the focus of the compass and gets us more focused on ourselves than what God is up to. And that shift is the shift from traditionally the church, at least probably when I say traditionally, probably within this, the last probably 50 years, the church has become a destination. And biblically, and for thousands of years, it was never intended to be a destination. The church was always meant to be a launch pad. But we've turned it into a destination, which means it becomes this place that we go to. It becomes this place that we try to get people to go to. And we are described church by the an hour and a half that we spend on Sunday morning with other people singing and then hearing teaching. And we say, that's church. But when you read through the book of Acts and you read through the New Testament, you never find that model in the New Testament. You never find ongoing gatherings des- described as church. What they are described as is a gathering, or we call it a service. But it's not church, because church is not a service, a gathering, it's not a pastor, it's not a building. It's us. Look around the room. Don't look at the building. Look at the people around you. This is the church. We are the church. The church is described by the people, by the followers of Jesus. And to understand this shift, and the reason I'm saying this is not just about New Hope, because been in Oregon for the last seven years, and then getting connected with even churches in Simi Valley. I had lunch with about 15 of the pastors in Simi Valley yesterday, and there was amazing conversations that were happening. It's like, are you reading our mail at New Hope? Because you're saying the same things that we're experiencing. The same shift that's going on here is going on other places. Because I believe what God is doing is that God cares so deeply for people, He's awakening the church to go back to what it originally was intended to be. Now hear me. That is not to somehow, especially in our history as a church, to somehow downplay the impact that God has made through Sunrise New Hope. It's been incredible what God's done through this church over the years. But God doesn't rest on his laurels. He doesn't say go back and somehow recreate what I did yesterday. Because God's moving forward, but he does establish principles for you and I that although the, the outward appearance of the church may change, the core of who the church is never changes. In a sense, what I've experienced in talking to other pastors and leaders is God is calling us back to what he originally purposed. So what I'm, the reason I'm saying that is there's a tendency since I'm the new pastor, and there's been a lot of pastors that have come and gone through this church that somebody might think, oh, this is Pastor John's idea. This is his next thing. I've seen it before. I've seen him come, and I've seen him go, and it's Pastor John's vision. Please, if it's my vision, then we're dead in the water because I don't have enough vision to do what God wants to do. But I look in the scriptures and I see what God's doing and I say, that's not just God's vision and purpose for, for New Hope. That's God's vision and purpose for the church. And if you picked up something in the last 20 minutes that maybe was absent, you, you're on it. And that is, not one time did I just mention as we went through those three things, did it have anything to do with church corporately. It all had to do with individuals. That God has called us to be the church as we come together, but the church is defined by me, by you, by us. Not the programs, not the services, not as a destination. We define what church looks like by the way we live our life. And when people think of church, they shouldn't think of 2350 Shasta Way. They should think of an individual who belongs to the church, who is a follower of Jesus. See, that's, that's New Testament. That's the book of Acts. That's how the church was defined. And this shift changes the way that we understand how church happens. And that shift is that if church is not a destination, that means church is about discipleship. Discipleship is not defined by 30 or an hour and 30 minutes on a Sunday morning. Discipleship is defined by our lifestyle. It's by what we live out during the week. It's about the relationships that we establish. And so understanding this, it's a shift, which means if it's about discipleship, then I don't have to wait till Sunday morning to experience church. I don't have to wait till Sunday morning to walk through discipleship. Because discipleship comes through us as individuals. And that means every single relationship that you have is a discipleship relationship. 
It is the relationships that God has given you because he wants to work through you to help people to know that apart from Jesus, they're separated from God and he's wanting to draw them back into a relationship with him to reestablish what God purposed for all humanity, to be in relationship with him. That means that all of us are disciplers. It's not just a handful of leaders. It's not just the pastor. It's not just the really talented and cool people. It's all of us. And whether we know it or not, God has given each one of us a sphere of influence in our relationships that he wants us to begin to disciple people. Now, let me explain a couple things about what that means that are really important. It's a shift again. Discipleship is not defined by inviting someone to church. It's about inviting someone to Jesus. And the reason that's so important is that we have done so much to try to get people to a church service that what we end up doing is we end up unintentionally short-circuiting the discipleship process because we think if we get people into the building and the pastor can really give a great message and he can give an invitation at the end and people can raise their hand and say, yeah, I want to become a Christian, then we've done our job. See, the tragedy of that is that what we've conditioned in people is that church is a destination and becoming a Christian is simply just a decision. Both of those are wrong. Because following Jesus is not a decision. It is a commitment. And when we do that, then we have a tendency. Now, that might be the start of someone's eventual journey to a commitment to follow Jesus. But what's happened in our culture is so many times people will come to church and raise their hand, but they'll never become a disciple. And for me as a pastor, that scares me to death that somehow we would let somebody walk outside these church buildings believing they know Jesus because they raised their hand or they prayed a prayer only to discover when they come to the end of their life, they're not standing before the throne and worshiping Jesus. They found themselves separated from God because somewhere down the line, nobody told them God wanted them to follow Jesus. God had more from them than what they were living. It's a shift. And here's the shift for church. Jesus never called us to plant churches. Go through the book of Acts. Never once did God give any instruction to his disciples to go plant churches. You know what he instructed them to do? Go make disciples. And if you read through the New Testament, we have it backwards. We go plant churches, but what happened in the book of Acts is that they made disciples, and the byproduct and result of disciples was church. It's a shift, and it seems backwards. And that's what's so crazy about it. But just think about that. So how do we plant churches in our culture? This is a shift. I know. I'm a church planner. I planted a church in Ventura. And I followed the script of what I was told to plant churches. And this is how you, how you plant a church in our culture. You get a core team together. You come up with a vision. You find a place to meet. You start marketing it. And you make sure that you get advertisements out there. And you get mailers out there. And you do a preview service. And that's your practice and your dry run. Because you want to make sure that when everybody really shows up for game day, that you know what you're doing. So then the next week or the next three weeks or whatever, you finally you launch your church. And how do we launch it? By doing a service. But what we end up doing is we just end up attracting a lot of people from other churches who say, hey, they're doing it differently. Or Let's go try that. When you read through the New Testament, you discover that disciples are made and then suddenly a church happens. That's a, Acts chapter 16, great story. The church at Philippi got planted in Acts 16. But you know how it got planted? Paul shows up to Philippi. He finds a place where he knows people are talking about Jesus and grappling with that. And it's a place of prayer. So he goes there and he starts talking about Jesus. And a, and a woman named Lydia gets saved. She's the first convert. She comes to know Jesus. And that's the start of the church. Paul didn't come to town, find a meeting place, and get out a mailer. He didn't do that. He made a disciple. And that disciple made another disciple. And the result was this church that you and I have a whole book that's addressed to. It's called Philippians. And it's a pretty kicking church. It's one of the churches that Paul actually has a lot of great things to say about. Unlike some of his other letters where he's, he's capping on the church. But I want you to capture that. And that's a shift for us in our understanding. And before we move on, what does this mean specifically for New Hope? I want you to understand that discipleship doesn't start at salvation. And what I mean by that, we think, okay, well evangelism, then discipleship. No, again, shift. Discipleship starts, if you know Jesus, discipleship starts the moment you meet a person. Because God has just opened a doorway of relationship for you to disciple them. And the reason we know that's true is because if you go through the Gospels, you're never going to find a point in the Gospels where you can definitively say, that's when the disciples got saved. You can't. When did Peter get saved? Some would say, oh, he got saved the day that Jesus came on the seashore and he asked him to, to leave his fishing business and come follow him. That's when he got saved. I don't know. I don't think so. 
because it took a while for Peter actually to get to the point where he could confess and says, said to Jesus, you're the Messiah. And then Jesus said, by the way, that wasn't revealed to you by man. That came from God. We think, well, that had to be the moment. Now, wait a second. Let's fast forward a few more chapters. And you remember Peter? I'll never deny you, Jesus. And then Jesus goes on trial. And three times, Peter actually, at one point, actually curses, saying, I don't know him. So was Peter saved? I don't know. But I'll, I'll tell you, I know when Jesus began to disciple Peter, it was on the seashore. It's when you first met Peter. It's when he said to Peter, come follow me. And Peter began this journey of discipleship with Jesus. So people that you work with, that you know, guess what? That's your discipleship relationship. That's the process of them watching you live out your faith. And this is what's beautiful, is that the most effective way to disciple people is in a relational context because people want to know what's real. They want to see the fact that someone who says they're a Christian strives to live their life in obedience to Jesus, but is human and grapples with failure and pain and struggle, but deals with it in a different way. See, the world's, looking, they, the world's seen the show and they've, they've gone somewhere else because they're not impressed with our shows. They're not impressed with trying to present the perfection that's not, exist, that's not really real. But when someone sees you and you're struggling in your marriage, but you're following Jesus, and you're trying to work things out with your wife, and you're working really hard at that, and you're being faithful in doing that, they see that you're a human being that they can relate to. And when we bring them to church, and you put the pressure, honestly, you put the pressure on me, I got to deliver the goods, they don't know me. They don't know anything about me. I don't know anything about them, but you know them, and they know you. In fact, they know you better than I will ever know them, because you got them to come to church, which probably freaked them out. That means that you have some kind of some, some respect in that relationship with them. So the reason I share all of that, I know it's a lot of information, is for you and I to understand there is a shift. And it's not a shift to some kind of new idea that Pastor John has come up with. It's a shift back to what God purposed for the church for the last 2,000 years. And simply, we want to re-embrace it. Because we live in a culture where people are dying and not being reconciled back to God. And Peter tells us that God is patient and he doesn't want anyone to perish. That's why Jesus hasn't come back yet. He's waiting, waiting, waiting. And the beauty is he's invited us to be a part of that process to help people be reconciled back to God. So you're thinking, well, that's all fine and dandy, but what does it really mean for us, right? I know we're getting now we're getting down to our address, okay? Google Earth, we're looking at your front door. We are zoomed in. We've come out of outer space, down onto the earth again, and now we're looking down, focused on what does this mean for New Hope? Again, we don't have a roadmap, we have a compass. So I'm not going to give you the roadmap, but I'm saying this is what some things will look like, and some of this is obviously things you've already, already heard or experienced. So the first thing is the right-size process. So we are in the process of transitioning out of this building, leaving this place that's been home for the church for a number of years. We've talked through the reason why is because we want to right-size ourselves, which means... It's not downsizing so we can somehow go to smaller, although we're going to smaller. The reason and the motivation for it is because we want to be at a place where the building that we meet in serves our purpose. We don't serve the purpose of the building. We want to be in charge and tell the building what it can and cannot do and not have the building tell us. Right now, this building owns us. It tells us what we can and cannot do in ministry and mission. And I've said this before. So, on a given month, when you take maintenance and you take utilities and you take lease payment, it's about $30,000 a month just to be here. $30,000 a month. That is insane. That's why we want to get to a place where overall we can cut that in half and get closer to about 15000 So right now, we're actually looking at a property over by Costco. If you drive out of the Costco parking lot, there's a building. It has an uh, industrial lighting company on the front. There's another part, portion of that building. There's about 17,000 square feet that we're looking at, which is about, just about half of what we have here. But it will do for what we need. And here's the key thing as we're making this transition. Because in our minds, when we think building, we think bigger, better. We were, we're moving forward. But this is what the key thing is. If we're going to be about discipleship, and we're not going to be about church as a destination then what we have to have, the key indicator, the key word in describing a church building for us will be functional. That means it works. Doesn't mean it has all the bells and whistles. Doesn't mean that it has the latest, greatest. It means it works for what we need it to do. And that's how we're shaping this. Because if we're able to do that, then this is what happens. This is, this is the, the goal. 
if we simplify it and we get into a space that we actually can afford that doesn't own us, then all the money that we're able to save, we can actually look to the future that eventually God opens a door for us to own property. That's a possibility. Right now, that's, that's a pipe dream apart from an absolute miracle of God, which I want to contend for. But more important than in property or building is that if we're saving, let's just say, let's say $15,000 a month, you know, you know how much ministry and mission $15,000 a month can do? A ton. That we're not owned by a building, but we tell the building what to do, that we can invest in things, that when things come up that have to do with investing in discipleship and mission, both locally and globally, we don't have to look at it and say, you know what, we got $30,000 a month, we can't do it. Because ideally, this is where, where it comes down, where the rubber meets the road. We want to be in a place where we're so focused on what we're doing that even our giving and our focus in giving is to be about giving it away. So ultimately, this is the way the church should function. This is my desire, and this is so you know what I'm aiming for. So, and so you know, I've said this before, I don't look at anybody's giving records. I don't know what you give, if you give, or how much you give. I don't. Because my, my desire and my purpose is to help you follow Jesus. And if I have to wrangle you into giving, I'm missing the point. The point is not money, the point is Jesus. But if you're obediently following him, 10% is where you're going to start. But you're going to be more generous than that because you realize it's God's money anyway. So my focus is not to go check on your giving. So, but when you understand that, this is ideally what the church should look like. Right now, statistics say U.S.-wide. So if, let's say, tithe is 10%, biblically, that's what it tells us to do. That they've done studies across America, across the board, average, that right now the church in America lives off 3% of the 10. So that means that right now, on average, across America, only 30% of what could be another 70% coming in is actually given. Can you imagine, on average, if every church was infused with 70% more income every month? Can you imagine what that would look like? I'll tell you what it would look like in our church. It's a perfect example. So Bob and Debbie are heading up a team to Peru. They're having a spaghetti dinner this Friday night. It's a great thing. They're going to talk about what's happening, but the reason we're doing that is to raise money. If we are fully focused on mission and we're not owned by a building, guess what we get to do? We don't have to do fundraisers anymore. Because we look at that and say, you know what? Because we've saved money, we have $500,000 in the bank. So the team needs fifteen dollars or $20,000 to say, you know what? Let's invest in that because we're already giving towards that. We don't have to, we don't have to say, hey, you've got to give, you've got to give, you've got to give. Why? Because we're already giving. In fact, even in, 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 in the instance of our building, we might actually be able to say, you know what? We don't even need you to give to right size. We just need you to faithfully tithe. And guess what? We have the money in the bank. We can make this transition. The right size process is going to cost probably, this is a general bar, ballpark, between $150,000 to $250,000. I think well, we're moving to a smaller place, but you've got permits, you have architects, you have build-out, you have all, the process costs a lot of money. But what if we had that resource? Because we don't have to put it into the pocket of an owner who gets to walk away with the money. That <laughs> we actually get to invest it. So, second thing is that we want to make sure that we simplify and focus our ministries. So, one of the things that's so important about getting back to discipleship ultimately reconciling people back to God so that God is glorified, is that we have to make sure that every ministry and everything that we do as a church runs through that lens, keeps the finish line in mind at all times. And so when we do that, we want to make sure that, honestly, the way that that process works is actually we end up doing less things, but we end up doing them more effectively. Because the tendency for us in our culture is that we, we have this mindset that if we're really going to be a significant church, we have to run ourselves ragged doing church. We have to have 10,000 programs, and we have to have something going on in the church building every night, and we have to run ourselves ragged, and somehow we can say, God, look at how great we are because we're so busy. God didn't call us to be busy. He called us to make disciples. And so you've probably noticed that, that there's been a few things that have, have fallen by the wayside or been set down intentionally to be revisited later. Because again, we're, we're wanting to simplify things so that those things that primarily disciple people are the things that end up on the church calendar, that end up being the focus of what we're doing. Because in the end, we don't get brownie points for a full calendar. We don't. 
But ultimately, we can see people stand in front of the throne worshiping Jesus because we were willing to say, you know what, we don't have to have all the, the programs and everything. We just need, Does this fit discipleship? Yes, it does. Then we're going to do it. Does this fit? No, it really doesn't. And it can't even really be turned to do fit discipleship. So we don't need to be doing that. And that's, that could be a hard decision. But again, simplifying ourselves, focusing ourselves, because what's at stake? Eternity is at stake. It's more than just style and it's more than just programs. It's the souls of people that is at stake for you and I. And that's why this is so urgent and so important for you and I. The whole point is not to kill ourselves doing church. It's not. And I'll tell you right now, one of the things that when Kim and I, we, we have, and I know you guys know this, and, and we have an incredible staff here, incredible leaders in this church. But I'll tell you, when Kim and I got here nine months ago, bless the staff, they were tanked. I mean, they were, and not just worn out from transition. They were just flat worn out because they were working like crazy to try to keep all the plates spinning in the church, keeping all the programs going. And as that's going on, as we're walking through this, Kim and I were asking one question. Why? Why are we doing this? And some people are like, I don't know why. Because we always have done this. So we have to keep doing that. No, not if it doesn't fit into discipleship that leads to reconciliation leads to the glory of god so that's why we're walking through this process saying you know what it's not so hey let's be lazy christians so we don't have anything on our calendar actually no discipleship is far more costly than programs in a full calendar because where you and i pay the price is at a personal level it's our commitment to other people around us and discipleship is messy and it's hard because we can't just plug people into a program or we can't send them to a class we got to sit down Life on life, face to face, and walk through stuff with people. It's what Jesus did with his disciples for three years. So which leads to the third thing, understanding that we are revisiting and refocusing our current ministries. Again, let me give you the illustration before I talk about this, about why we're doing what we're doing, and that is, I've used the illustration before, our best model for understanding what church should look like is the comparison between Jack in the Box and in and out You've heard me say this. Hear me. It's not just because I like in and out even though I do, is that we don't want to be a church that tries to have a little something for everybody. That becomes running ourselves ragged. We want to be in and out that does things well, but only does a few things, but does them really, really well, really effective. And that's why that's the simplification process. So we are asking the questions with ministry, how does these things that we're doing or we want to do fit into this process of the compass God's given us, of heading towards the ultimate goal of glory of God through reconciliation and the process of discipleship. How does this fit? So we're asking that of our children's ministry, our next-gen ministries. That's what we brought Stacy Hess on. And now we're looking at the bigger picture. So she oversees, you know, from birth to, to young adult. But asking the question, how do we create a process that we are discipling kids, not when they reach to certain elementary school years or middle school or high school, but how do we start the discipleship process when a child is born into our church? See, if we, want to, if we want the ultimate goal that when a high school student graduates high school and becomes a young adult, which is where right now the church in America is losing the battle because most kids graduate high school and more now than not actually leave the church because there's nothing compelling about it anymore. Because they've done the programs, they've gone, gone to the big show, they've seen all that church is supposed to be, and they walk away saying there's got to be something more than this. There's got to be something real. But if we want to engage a young person at 19, it doesn't start when they're 18. It starts when they're born. Because it's, it's making sure that what we do for a third grader links with what we do for a sixth grader, links what we do with a ninth grader, all the way through a young adult. It's that whole process. And that's why we're asking, what does this look like? How do we make sure that we know what we're, what we're, how we're, and the ultimate goal is to how do we partner with parents to help them disciple their kids? Because parents, you guys, we know. We are the primary disciplers in the lives of our kids. Because an hour and a half on Sunday or something during the week is not discipleship. But when you and I live life together with our kids, I know primary discipler in my life is my dad. A lot of other people have discipled me, but he's the one that I saw. I watched him as I grew up. I listened to him. And I hope someday I can come close to the man that he is because he helped me to understand what it looks like to follow Jesus. 
So understanding that process. So even for ministries like men's ministry is shifting right now. I met with Wally Wolf and met with the, 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 the men's team. And so we're shifting what we're doing with men. And so part of that is that instead of doing a monthly men's breakfast, we're actually shifting to do a quarterly barbecue as a connection point for all guys to get together. And we'll do that every quarter. But one of those quarters will be not a, a barbecue, but we're going to do a retreat every year for men. And the reason that we're doing retreat is because some people, I know some guys, especially like, I don't want to go to retreat. Guys snore. You know, I don't know if the food's going to be good. The bed's not comfortable. And any guys ever feel that way? You want to be honest? I have. Okay. But you know what happens when you get out of your normal context? Sometimes it's the first time in a long time you can actually hear God. When you get in the context where you actually have accelerated relationships with other guys that you don't even know, or maybe you say hi and goodbye every Sunday, but you've never gotten into each other's lives, that can't happen on a Sunday morning, but it can happen in a retreat. If Jesus, who was God in human flesh, walked the planet, actually took time to extract himself from life and go to a place of solitariness so he could hear, the God, hear what God was saying to him, hear what the Father was saying, don't you think that maybe we should do that too? So I love retreats and I love camps for kids because it gets them, they're not the answer for everything, but it gets out of our normal rhythm. When you get out of cell coverage, oh my goodness, can you imagine what that would be like? And you're forced to listen to God and build relationship. But part of that is that, in fact, this next, next month on the 11th of Friday night, guys, will have our, our first barbecue that we're doing for the fall. And I'm going to speak that night and talk about really part of the discipleship process is, is creating small groups for men that are called life. And ladies, this will be for you too, but guys, we're getting the jump on it, called life transformation groups. It's three guys meeting together, really simple. You're reading scripture. You're talking to each other about what God's saying to you. And then you're going through a list of very pointed accountability questions about your life. And you meet on a weekly basis when your schedule permits in terms of what time during each week you can meet. And it's amazing if you could submit yourself to that, how God begins to challenge you and to speak to you and to help you to grow. And so we're going to talk about how we can get connected in those groups on that, that first barbecue on October 11th. And then also for things like women's ministry, there are things in the works for women that will unfold. But we're, again, we're asking the question, the process of discipleship. And I know one of the questions, women, if you've been in the church for a little while, are we still going to have a women's tea? Yes, we're still going to have a women's tea, okay? It's already, in fact, I think it was in the bulletin last week or a little save the date. So uh, women's tea actually has been an amazing thing as, as I've talked to Debbie and, and also talked to some people who've experienced some pretty powerful transformation through the invitation to the tea and hearing something spoken about who God is, but it's always through the context of a relationship. Those kind of things can be accelerants in helping the discipleship process for people. So, but there'll be other things that have to do with what, with, for women. But the, the big piece that I want you to understand is, that is, is as it has to relate to small groups. So we just launched small groups again this fall, and, and some of you have signed up and been a part of small groups in the last couple of weeks. They've met for the first time, and and by the way, most of our small groups are like not small groups. They're like big groups, like 20 people and, and sometimes more, um, which is a good, good problem to have. We need to multiply leaders. But I want you to understand the shift that we're walking through with small groups is that historically our church has been a church with small groups, which means small groups, here's the church and small groups are this little compartment over here that just every once in a while it comes and it goes and it changes. But the shift that we're walking through is becoming a church of small groups, which means this is right now as a church, we have, this is Sunday morning, this is small groups. What we're in the process of doing is this, because where true discipleship happens is in a small group, and that's biblical. See, if you read through the book of Acts, what happens is when the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2, the process that begins to happen is that they didn't have a church building to go to. In Jerusalem, they had the temple, but you know where the Christians ended up? Not inside the temple. They ended up in the outer court at a place called Solomon's Colonnade. It was a porch. That's as good as they could do. So they didn't have the space to have big gatherings. So you know what they did? They met in each other's homes. And they began to understand as the disciples taught them the teachings of Jesus is what we're getting over the next 18 months. And as they did that in a relational context, that's where this discipleship really happened. So again, we're going back to embrace what was already there 2,000 years ago. And the added element to that is not only does a small group provide what a normal small group does, which is nurture and care and praying for each other and studying scripture and challenging each other, all those things, but we're adding another very important dynamic to that. And this is what the small group leaders are, in a sense, kind of experimenting with over the next eight or nine months, 
is adding the whole dynamic of being mission-minded, which means that as a small group gets together, they find ways to serve together. And the reason this is so important on two, two points, because the ultimate outcome of discipleship is mission. In the book of Acts, when people came to know Jesus, they immediately transitioned from, it's no longer just about me, it's about the world. They immediately were on mission. They were reaching out, they were going, they were serving, they were doing those things. So, but what happens? So that's adding that element. The other thing is, when, if you've ever, anybody ever been on a mission trip before? Okay, so, so there's a dynamic that happens when you serve side by side with other people who are following Jesus that doesn't happen if you're sitting in somebody's living room. See, if you've ever experienced you go on a missions trip, and sometimes maybe the trip, the team is people you don't really know, you're getting to know, or maybe even the team is made up of people you don't really like, and you start off and think, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. Two weeks later, you find yourself at the airport crying because you don't want to let go of this person. Anybody experience that? Because you've just gone through a place where you've had to live beyond yourself. You've had to go outside your comfort zone. You've been tested You've been pushed sometimes emotionally. And all those things begin to create a bond with people around you. And so you have this connection that you would have never had unless you had pushed yourself outside your comfort zone to serve other people and to be on mission. We can do that without going to the other side of the world. We can do that in Simi Valley. We can do that by partnering with with the Samaritan Center, by adopting somebody in your neighborhood who needs to be cared for, about all the kinds of things that small groups will come up with. This is the beauty of it. It's not one size fits all. It's opening our eyes to say, God, what, is, what are you calling our small group to do? And then you go do it. When this happens, it gets accelerated and mission goes through the roof and people get reached. And this is what begins to happen. The primary place of people coming to know Jesus is not in this room. It's in your living room. And it's more effective because they're not raising their hand and making a decision. They're walking into your small group and, oh, God forbid, a non-believer shows up to your small group. What in the world are we going to do with that? But you know what they get to see? They get to see you grapple with Scripture. They get to see you pray for people who are struggling. They get to see you pray for people who need healing. They get to see real faith lived out in a relational context. And then they begin to realize this is for real. This isn't the show that I saw on Sunday morning. This is people grappling with what it means to be human and what that means to follow Jesus. That's what the world's looking for. They're dying for it. And, and statistics stay. In the last couple of years, they came out, and this is, I, I've seen this in my own experience. 40% of the population right now is favorable to going to church. 60% of our population is not favorable to going to church, which means it doesn't matter how good we do church. It doesn't matter if we get the biggest building and we have the best production and everything is perfect and I am spot on every week and bring it home. It doesn't matter because they still won't come. You know why? Because they have no need to come to a place to focus on God because they don't know him. And that's where our culture is. And by the way, that's shifting even more. That 60% is getting bigger and that 40% is getting smaller. And that's why, honestly, the most effective way to reach people is through relationship outside the context of a church gathering. Because that's what makes disciples. That's what helps people. Because the moment you engage that non-believer, you've just to start, to begun the process of discipleship with them. Even if you didn't talk about Jesus, you started discipleship with them because they're watching you. And you're helping to shape their understanding of who Jesus is by the way that you live your life. So that is a shift that we're walking through. That is a work in progress. That is not something that, oh, we have it all together, and boom, here we go. It's different. It's going to take some time as we understand what God's doing and where he's leading us. And then the final thing before we'll take a quick break and then take some, some questions is that this has to do more with how we live together as a church family. So what we're walking through right now is, is at the core, becoming healthy relationally establishing a healthy relational culture within our church. This as, is, is as important as anything else I've said to this point. Because what you and I have to understand as we begin to keep our eye on the finish line and we begin to move forward, there's somebody who doesn't want us to move forward. The enemy doesn't want us to move forward. Jesus does, but the enemy doesn't. But you and I need to understand the greatest enemy is not the enemy outside our doors. It's the enemy inside. It's the enemy that we get, we get influenced in our own relationships. I've seen in my own experience as a pastor and in my own life, one of the primary ways that the enemy destroys the church is through fractured relationship and offense. 
through this vehicle called gossip. And it kills God's mission and it kills the church faster than anything. And what's crazy about it is that the enemy doesn't have to even work hard to make it happen. He just has to create fractures in our relationships. He has, just has to make sure that we get offended and misunderstand each other and that we stay separate and that we never ever talk to each other. So what that means for you and I to make sure that we establish a healthy relational culture, we have to shift from talking around each other to actually talking to each other. That's a struggle. Because so many times our pattern is if I am upset with somebody, they offend me. If I don't like, even at a leadership, if I don't like what the church is doing, I don't like the style of worship, I don't like this, this, this. Our tendency is never to go to the person this has to do with. We go to find somebody else that has a lending ear to our gossip. And we go and we talk and we say, yeah, it should be different and I wish it was different. But we never go and talk to the person. And when that happens over and over again and over again, you know what we end up having? A bunch of silos all over the church. Pockets of people who are looking at other people and talking about them or people who don't like what's going on in leadership. And so they're talking about it. Certain preferences end up going together. So people who are like-minded have their little silos. That's where we're trying to break those down. That's one of the reasons we're having this gathering because I want you to know there's nothing behind the curtain. It's all out in front, okay? Transparent. We're not pulling any punches. There's no ulterior motives that somehow, okay, that's what he's really after. Just this is who we are. Simple, focused about discipleship. So understanding that means that this is where the rubber meets the road for us as a church family. And this is on us, the way we relate. So, by the way, what I'm describing to you, I didn't come up with this. Jesus did 2,000 years ago. He said, if you come to offer your gift at the altar and you know that you have an issue or someone has an issue with you, put down your gift, go make it right, and then come back. So what he's saying is don't come and worship me if you have a fractured relationship because you can't relate to me unless you relate right to other people. That's what Jesus said. So how do we live that out? Here's the challenge for you and I. So if somebody comes to you and they share with you something about somebody else because they're offended or they're hurt or they're gossiping, this is our responsibility as individuals. We're pretty good at identifying when somebody's got a beef with somebody else. It's not rocket science. So if they do, this is what we should say. This is what you say to them. Say, you know, it seems that you have an offense with somebody else. And this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you one week to go and talk to them to go and work that out. At the end of that week, I'm going to come back and I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to ask you if you've talked to them. If you tell me you haven't talked to them, then I'm going to go to them and say, by the way, so-and-so has a problem with you and I want to bring the two of you together so you resolve it. I know thinking, wow, that's really extreme. That's crazy. I'll tell you what, if we live by that, we will never gossip in this church. And the reason we won't is when the gossip starts, it gets shut down immediately because what happens is people who has a, have a propensity to gossip will find there's nobody left to gossip to because it's so uncomfortable when you go and they shut you down and they send you back to the other person. You know what's wonderful is that the staff and the leadership are beginning to live by this rhythm. I've watched you within our own staff, that we have rules within the staff, that we talk to each other, not around each other. That if in a staff meeting, if somebody's silenced, that means disagreement, so you better speak up. And if you have an issue with somebody, you don't go into somebody else's office and say, you know what that person said to me? So you know what I've seen over the last couple months? I've seen people who had a misunderstanding sitting in their office together saying, hey, this is not what I meant. I'm sorry if it came across this way. Can we work this out? And I love it. I love our staff. We have such a great time together, but we are relationally healthy. That's what we want for the whole church. Not only just to experience. Can you imagine what it would be like to walk in on a Sunday morning and have zero drama? To walk into this room and not look across the room and think, oh man, they're here. Because I know we do it. Like, oh man, really? I wish they would leave already. Honestly, that's the way that we live. We get frustrated. But God calls us to deal with those things, to live in a healthy manner. Because this is the crazy thing. If you and I live in that, that way this way, you know what the root awakening is going to be? One day when we reach the finish line and we're standing before the throne and we're worshiping Jesus and we look across the throne and, oh, stink, they made it in and they're still here. (laughs) Seriously. And that's going to be the worst feeling possible because there will be people, if we haven't dealt with them here, we'll have to deal with them there. So living that way and so establishing that, why? Because it's not about us. Because what's at stake here? If we can't get along with each other because, again, what is the character of Jesus that demonstrates discipleship? Love. 
That's what we have to live in. And if we live that way, because this is not about us, we have to be able to get along because there's a world that's been separated from God. There's a world that's yet to be reconciled back to God through Jesus. And if we can't live together in health, then we will never get to the mission that Jesus called us to. So that's why we want to establish that culture. So we're going to take about a five, three to five minute break real quick. So you can head to the restrooms. Uh, you can grab more coffee and cookies. And then we're going to have time for some question and answers. I value time. I want to move us through. But again, I want to give opportunity for questions and whatever you want to ask. So let's take a quick break and then head back to your tables. <laughs>